looking through Mark's Gospel this Lent in a series entitled Amazed and Afraid, The Adventure of Following Jesus. And we've been looking at this journey that begins at the end of chapter 10 in Mark's Gospel as Jesus and his disciples turn toward Jerusalem and begin that journey and arrive in Jerusalem and Jesus teaches in the temple and and encounters the religious authorities there and works with his disciples through his arrest and the period preceding that arrest. And then we looked last week, and thanks to Krista for taking us through that uh, picture of Peter's denial. And what we've seen in all of these texts is there is kind of a storm around Jesus, people's reaction to him and and then his own amazing calm in the midst of that storm and those reactions. And the reaction of people, as Mark describes it, is one of amazement and fear. That the questions, his teaching, his actions, and his presence occasion are really the stuff of this portion of, of Mark's gospel. And today we come to Palm Sunday, and so traditionally on this day, the passage that we dealt with very early on in this series is the one that we read. But fortunately in the church, they also call this Passion Sunday, and that's much more appropriate to the text that I'll read today. Because his trial and conviction and his sentence are what are spoken of in Mark 15, verses 1 through 20. And so let's look at that. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You say so. And then the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the festival, Pilate used to release a prisoner for them, anyone for whom they asked. And now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. And so the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. And then Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. And Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. And Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole cohort. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed and spat upon him and 
knelt down in homage to him. And after mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, help us today to find our own place in this story, both wherein it we might have been participants and also what it does to us now as we read it from the perspective that we have. Help us to find our place in this story. And so by your spirit, read us and speak to our hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you've seen this by now, but there is something about Mark's story and the way he tells it, the way he tells the story of Jesus, that is, that calls to mind something similar to what Sergeant Joe Friday used to say on Dragnet when someone was going on and on and on with an explanation and he would say, and usually a woman uh, would be doing this, just... Yeah, I know, but it's our story, believe me. Uh, He would sort of calmly say, now, now, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. That's also Sergeant Joe Friday wanted, just the facts. And it feels like to me as I read Mark's gospel, more often than not, that's what Mark does. He just kind of puts forward the facts. Not a whole lot of commentary about what everyone's thinking, but a description of what is happening. And that leaves us a whole lot of room to find our place in the story. Just the facts. That's what Mark gives us, I think, in this text, an unadorned telling of the facts that take us very deeply into the horror of what is happening. He needs to do nothing more than point out the development of events. And as he does so, he takes us into the emotions surrounding Jesus' trial and conviction and sentence. And what we see in Mark's telling of the story is, quite frankly, just a description of the cold political reality of the struggle that Jesus is in. And Jesus is almost nothing more and nothing less in the story than collateral damage of maintaining peace and stability, which is what is on the minds of the leaders that are described in this passage. Jesus is the collateral damage of that task that they have to maintain the peace. This sort of political task of manipulating the crowd in order to maintain some semblance of order. That's what both the council and the chief priests and Pilate are really all about in this text. And all of it sort of wraps itself around this title that Pilate uses for Jesus, the king of the Jews. All of it kind of comes to a point of pivot around that designation, king of the Jews. All of it is kind of catalyzing 
the reaction to Jesus that Mark so often points to, which is one of amazement and fear. So Pilate uses that term when he encounters Jesus. The council has brought Jesus to Pilate because they want to get rid of Jesus, and they need Pilate to do that. And so they have brought Jesus to Pilate, accusing him of treason, essentially, because that's what Rome is interested in. If anyone proclaims themselves to be a king, then Caesar is no longer king, and therefore that person needs to be moved out of the way and taken care of. So they use that opportunity of Roman law to bring Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate, as Mark says, knowing full well the political dynamics and what's going on here, turns to Jesus and asks that question. Are you king of the Jews? And what we need to know is that it's a question and a title that for Pilate is dripping with cynicism and sarcasm. For here is this governor of Palestine who has yet another crisis of disorder in this backwater of an assignment that he has. Picture him saying, I could have been a contender. I should be in Rome. And here I am in this mess, in this backwater desert nothingness. So it's cynicism and sarcasm that really frame Pilate's question because he's trying to keep order in a place where there's an unending opportunity to engage various powder kegs of disorder and rebellion. It's happening all the time. And so he has a profound disinterest in the dispute being brought before him because it seems like an internal matter that he should have nothing to do with. So what if he is king of the Jews? What is that title before the power of Rome? That's really Pilate's tacit question in all of this, king of the Jews, who cares? Let him be king of the Jews. Why are you bringing this mess to me? And the soldiers pretty much have the same reaction. When Pilate ultimately does hand Jesus over to the soldiers, they're pretty much acting out of the same set of assumptions that Pilate's acting out of. And they express the same disdain and they bring to that a mockery as well, a mock coronation. And as if to say, ha ha, yeah, 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 sure, king of the Jews. How much of a king do you feel like now? But what's so interesting about Pilate's reaction and Mark's telling of the story is that there is a bit of a pause when Jesus' silence greets Pilate. And Mark says that Pilate's amazed by him. Amazed, I think, at his indifference to the power of Rome, his seeming lack of concern of how the outcome of this political struggle could affect him. Maybe even profoundly unimpressed with the power that Pilate asserts that he has. Why is Pilate amazed? At some level, he's intrigued by this man's fearlessness. Or his ability to hide his fear, one of the two. 
What's interesting that what happens with the other characters in this encounter, the Jewish religious leaders, is that they too have a reaction to that line, king of the Jews, but their reaction is one of complete silence. They don't really address Pilate's question. They're not interested in Pilate's question because they know it's his turn and it's not their turn because if they were going to talk about a king who has importance, it wouldn't be the king of the Jews, it would be the Christ, the son of the blessed, the Mashiach, the, the Messiah. And that was the other phrase that was being used of Jesus. It was the one being used of him when the crowds were surrounding him and on the triumphal entry, the day of that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, singing, Hosanna, save us, save us, Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is this anointed one who, like David, will save us, this anointed one who is the son of the most blessed. The term that the people used of Jesus upon his triumphal entry was the term that concerned the religious leaders, and it was a term that concerned them for the same reasons that the term king of the Jews might have been of some concern to Pilate. Because Messiah, in this context, was a destabilizing term. There had been lots of people dubbed Messiah, lots of hope that someone would arise up to throw out the Romans, and create that situation where the Romans would be driven from Jerusalem. And nothing could be more destabilizing to the religious leaders of the day because any attempt to throw out Rome would also mean their certain demise as it indeed happened in 70 AD when during a rebellion the Romans came in and tore down the temple. And the wall that you see people praying at today is the remnant of that temple. That was never to be rebuilt again. So they're concerned about power as well and kings. But they're concerned about the title Messiah being applied to Jesus. There's a fear of bringing down the, the wrath of Rome on themselves and unhinging their whole stable religious order that they had been able to maintain in spite of Roman occupation. And so they need Jesus to be gone as well. They need Rome to effect that cleansing. And they are afraid. Afraid as they're caught between the power of Rome and the power of the crowd to destabilize things. And then finally we have Jesus' reaction to that phrase, king of the Jews. And it's one of something that could be characterized as almost indifference. And he says to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? He says, you say so. That's your term, but it's not my term, is the, the tacit meaning in, in that passage. And then there's nothing but silence. You say so. That's your title. There's nothing then for Jesus but silence, a sense of calm as this storm rages around him. It's like the same sort of thing that happens earlier in Mark's gospel where he's asleep in the boat 
while the disciples are worried about being in a boat that's being overwhelmed with water during the storm. It's a sort of what St. Ignatius would call holy indifference. Silence. Silence that's not to be broken in this story because Jesus remains pretty much silent from this point on until we hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we'll get to that on Thursday night. But his silence does not go unnoticed by Pilate. As I said, Mark tells us that Pilate is amazed. And there's a bit of a crack at this point in his shell of cynicism because something producing silence rather than sarcasm has taken place. So Pilate himself is silent. And as Mark tells the story, Jesus seems to be a pawn, as I've said, in a political struggle, collateral damage and the greater goal of keeping the peace. And there's no clue as to what's happening inside him in the face of this threat. And I suppose that's why the early church, when it was looking for parts of the Old Testament to speak to the ministry and the life of Jesus, chose Isaiah 53, two verses that I did not read in this morning's reading, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. It's hard not to be amazed at that kind of silence. Several years ago, I read a book on, on pastoral leadership that was written by Rabbi Edwin Friedman that was called Generation to Generation. And he speaks of how important it is for pastoral leaders, priests and rabbis and, and ministers, especially in the midst of conflict, to have what he called a non-anxious presence. It made an impression on me. For what it does is it puts forward the truth that there is something bigger when someone is present but not anxious. It, it puts forward the kind of confidence that there is something bigger that will be true even in the face of conflict. It's kind of like that ability to ask when the church is in turmoil, if we can do this when we're in turmoil, to step back from the turmoil and say, irrespective of how this situation is resolved, will Jesus still be Lord? It's a great question to ask because the answer is always yes. And when the answer is always yes, it puts us in that place of having the ability to have a non-anxious presence because there's something inviolable. There's something that cannot be moved that will be true even though we don't understand how it might be true, it's there. It's to put forward the truth that there is something bigger that will be true even in the face of conflict, that faith, hope, and love abide, that we are being held together. 
by this one who holds all things together. And clearly in this passage, Jesus is an example of non-anxious presence, of holy indifference. And in a sense, in his silence saying, this is not our story. This is not our conflict. These are not the powers that have the last word. True, the world works in this way. But as Jesus told James and John back in chapter 10, early in this series when we read it, true, the world works this way. The kings of the Gentiles love to lord it over them, but it shall not be so with you. The way of God's kingdom, in other words, is a very unking-like way. Where greatness is about service and preeminence is about giving away power rather than fighting fiercely to protect it. So, my friends, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Rivet our attention on that glory that seems on first examination to be injustice. On that throne that on first examination appears to be nothing more than a state-sponsored execution. Rivet our attention on your love. And so give us the energy we need to reflect it, to live in light of it, and to share out of the abundance of it. For we pray in your name. Amen.